Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Great to have you. Um, I wanted to start the podcast off with a question we ask every guest, which is kind of how they got introduced to the game of lacrosse, kind of your recruiting story, and then where lacrosse took you after college. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. This is very cool. Um, how I started with lacrosse? Well, I think probably like any uh, typical American boy not in Maryland or upstate New York, I was playing baseball, and um, I had a buddy who was playing lacrosse, and, you know, probably the natural stuff. I was sitting in the outfield waiting for a little bit of action, and it would mm-hmm. never occur, and my buddy seemed to be having a lot of fun playing lacrosse. So I think it was either fifth or sixth grade. I can't remember exactly what grade it was, but then I convinced my father to let me play, and um, I was pretty much hooked right out of the gate, you know. Um, it was my addiction, and, uh, you know, from that point, um, I was also a big ski racer. That was kind of where I grew up ski racing. Is I was going to say, I've never even heard of ski racing. I mean, down here in Texas, skiing alone is right. unheard of. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, um, ski racing is in the northeast where I'm from, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where Bodie Miller's from, and then there's um, oh, Michaela Schifrin, mm-hmm. who's now the best skier in the world. Uh, on the female side, she's from that area as well. And so, you know, there's a rich history in ski racing. And um, so I did it for a while, and my, my sister was very good, and, and, you know, it's just kind of what you do up there. And um, I eventually quit the ski racing academy because I was so hooked on lacrosse. And... Um, even though my father was maybe a little depressed, he was psyched because his bank account got a lot bigger <laughs> yeah. after that. You know, <laughs> um, ski racing is not a cheap sport, and um, and we're not a super rich family or anything. So you know, I'm sure he was pretty psyched, and um, you know, so then I kind of got going. And where I grew up is right near Dartmouth College, basically mm-hmm. on Dartmouth College campus. And so for me personally, I was your typical lax rat junkie. Um, I was a ball boy for the Dartmouth team. Growing up, I knew Timmy Nelson very well. Um, he uh, probably illegally threw me in a few practices when I was a youngster, and I'm sure you can't do that. But uh, but uh, he's not coaching anymore, so it doesn't matter if they know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, just by virtue of being a junkie and, and loving the sport and playing as much as possible, um, I got to a point where I started to get noticed, you know, uh, in, in the lacrosse world, which at that time in New Hampshire – you know, things have definitely gotten better now, but back then, very few, if any, people actually got to the point where they were being recruited by top D1 programs, mm-hmm. let alone like Hopkins or, you know, Maryland or Loyola or whoever it may be. And so um, uh, late into my high school career is when things started to change. Um, unlike now where there's recruiting tournaments left and right, uh, when I was growing up, there was really probably two or three camps that you either – that really you had an opportunity to make your mark at. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was top 205. Yep. I went there going into my junior year and then the summer going into my senior year as well. And um, and really, I hadn't been recruited by anybody at all prior to that. Um, you know, being from New Hampshire, uh, you know, we didn't really have any ties or connections that would maybe lead us to a top coach or anything right. like that, yeah. you know. And uh, so it was really just a, a matter of, proving yourself in the weekend that you had, you know, and, and that was kind of it. There was no YouTube at the time. Um, 
you know, I don't even think we ever even sent in a VHS tape to any coaches. Yeah. You know, it was pretty simple. Uh, and I, I just happened to go out to 205. Uh, I think it was – I can't remember which one of the years is when it kind of, the recruiting kind of started. But then that's – after that is when, you know, people like Dave Petramala and Dave Cottle and, and uh, a handful of other people started contacting me about playing. And it was kind of a big deal in our little state, mm-hmm. you know, because people from New Hampshire didn't really – uh, play at a high level, at least come out from there playing at a high level, and um, it was great, you know. And uh, I eventually chose Loyola. Um, I just really liked the uh, the grit, the the uh, mm-hmm. kind of the blue collar style that they had. Mm-hmm. That was um, uh, really it. Really just suited me. Yeah, you know. Um, I don't want to go into like massive stereotypes, but like you know, <laughs> there's some troubled souls there, and I yeah. felt like I fit in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yep. And so uh, for me, it was definitely like. You know, Loyola or Hopkins kind of maybe was what it came down to, and I chose Loyola primarily for those reasons. I just like the style. So just kind of going back to when you were younger, we had Paul Carcaterra on, and one thing that he talked a lot about was, like, when he was growing up, there wasn't really that many lacrosse camps. There wasn't Mm -hmm. that much to do, so you became a great lacrosse player just by playing in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And just kind of messing around with friends. Um, so for you, growing up again, where the fact that you were starting your recruiting process as a junior in high school seems so foreign now. Yep. When you think about your time in high school, how did you develop as a player uh, versus now, where there's just so many camps and clinics and prospect days? What did you do to kind of develop as a player? Uh, for me. Um, I wasn't the best player in the country coming out of high school mm-hmm. uh, or anything like that. But, you know, I was good enough to play at the D1 level. And for me, it was a – I want to say it was kind of like a matter of cliche, though it may sound like kind of being a s- true student of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend was the uh, VCR. I – and back then, uh, I think it was – cross was on what ESPN 2 I think mm-hmm. it was yeah and so there was only so many games really the only thing that was even on ESPN which I think was just the final four right yep and so the only players I knew were like Doug Knight Michael Watson mm-hmm. Casey Powell um and the only teams I knew were like Loyola Virginia Syracuse Hopkins and maybe a few others in there right um and and really at that time at the D1 level after those top five or six or maybe eight programs a shelf really dropped you mm-hmm. know and um and so that was all i had and so i recorded every single one of those final fours and on top of just being extremely ocd um i watched those tapes every single day in the same way a a kid now maybe plays um call of duty right yeah you know on a very obsessive level mm-hmm. um the guy i always liked watching was michael watson that was the guy i related to the most when it came to like size and physique and things like that mm-hmm. so i was like well i'm not nearly as fast as a guy like casey powell right I'm probably not going to get to that point but you could become good in other ways you don't have to be fast to be good or, or like super strong or whatever the case is right and so that was the guy i really honed in on personally and you know there would be things where I, i'd watch his split dodge literally probably like 50 times in a row the exact same split dodge mm-hmm. i just rewind go back and play it again rewind and just look at all the little little like idiosyncrasies and the little movements mm-hmm. that made up such a good split dodge for him and um and then um i, I was pretty 
for not living in an area that's lacrosse rich at all, I was extremely resourceful. Right. Um, I was I worked on grounds crew at Dartmouth, which gave me the keys to the indoor field house. <laughs> right. And so uh, in the summers, I work grounds crew and I do nothing. I go in the uh, shed and, you know, they think I'm mowing the lawn, but I'm just sitting there like what, you know, trying to, you know, throwing the ball against the barn wall. And, and if my grounds crew boss came by, you know, I'd have to drop it and like, you know, get the rake or something and start raking leaves or something. But I was pretty good at finding a job that where they just leave me mm -hmm. in an area on campus and they'd assume I'd be doing the work or they just assign me something that didn't matter. And I'd play wall ball until they came back and, you know, I was getting paid to play wall ball, <laughs> you know, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And on top of that, I found out I, I got access to um, the facilities at Dartmouth. Um, and so going through high school, I would actually um, leave. So we went to high, I went to high school in the neighboring town because my town was actually too small to have a high school. Mm -hmm. And so we were about a 20 minute drive from high school. And um, and I would leave my brother and my sister at home. And I would leave at around 4.30 a.m., 5 a.m. to go train in the Levron Fieldhouse at Dartmouth. And, uh, you know, I'd hit the lights on the way in and hope I wouldn't get caught. And then um, I'd go take a shower in the sink uh, after that before school. And that's that type of obsession. Um, uh, you know, you, you know, it, it's the, the more you do it, obviously, the better you get. Mm -hmm. And that and people actually start to recognize that um, Rick Soul, uh, now at Navy, uh, ended up becoming the head coach at Dartmouth. I want to say like my eighth grade or freshman year. Mm -hmm. And he kind of caught wind of how OCD I was about the sport and how badly I wanted to be a good player and kind of in a weird way kind of took me under his wing kind of always checked up on me and always mm -hmm. like you know hey how you doing and and just in a way any way he could legally right right you help know you um and and i was always in his ear anyway you know ask him to help me he's like well i kind of can't because i'm a d1 coach yeah. it might be illegal and things like that and so but i was always there mm -hmm. i was always hovering in the background trying to find a way to to gain an edge i became friends with a dean and um the dean had the uh, key to the football weight room so every evening we go to the football weight room together and we train, hmm. you know, um, and then eventually I acquired that key, you know, or, or I, I think I went to like a hardware store and made a copy <laughs> yeah, of it or something, yeah, yeah. you know, any way to get in that weight room. And then weightlifting got really important to me because I was never a large guy, but I knew I needed to be, you know, pretty explosive and quick. Yep. And so I trained very heavily on that level, you right. know, um, and so I'd be in there alone training and. You know, just finding any way to become a better athlete as a whole on top of, you know, developing the skill sets to become a good lacrosse player. Hmm. So you're just kind of transitioning to then your time at, at Loyola. Um, I would say the the one thing that's hard to coach is the effort and the desire just to be good because it's hard. I mean, practice can suck. Doing the extra right. work can suck. But if you have somebody that is willing to do that, uh -huh. makes it a lot easier to coach that kid. So when you tra transition from a not rich high school lacrosse program to mm -hmm. Loyola, what was that, oh, wow, these guys are good moment for you, and how was that transition from high school to college? Uh, for me, it was tough. Um, you know, I guess if, if, like, you want to talk about regrets, one of my biggest regrets is I just – wasn't an academic student mm -hmm. and um i just always had issues in the classroom and so you know uh transitioning to college playing wise for me was 
it was awesome and in other ways it was a struggle uh obviously the speed of the game was a lot faster yeah right um and uh you know that there's obvious issues with that you know any i think any high school player now or back then doesn't matter when you go into the college level you're playing at a much faster pace so you got to be used to that and for me in high school I was a really quick kid, and so I could create a lot of space very easily. And when you create that space as an athlete, you have time to think. When you create that space at the college level, you don't have as much time to think mm-hmm. as you used to. You know, And you see a lot of guys who are really good in high school, and they seem like really smart players in high school because maybe they can blow by the first guy in a dodge, and there's all this space be- before the slide comes. And so they appear a lot smarter than they maybe are mm. on the field because – that's time to think. And when you shorten that time frame, the ability to think becomes a lot harder. Um, So that transition was, was definitely a struggle, but it, but I closed the gap pretty quick there. I got pretty good at it pretty quick. Um, For me, uh, the biggest transition really was, you know, once, you know, after the first two or three weeks, I kind of got a feel for my role as a player at Mm -hmm. that, at that level. And for me, the biggest problem was academics because I still had the exact same, obsessive work ethic as a lacrosse player and that meant kind of skipping class once in a while right (laughs) yeah and and things like that and i'm not gonna lie like i enjoyed having a good time Mm -hmm. i call it the trifecta you know there's very few people who can party play a sport very well and do academics well yes i did not have the trifecta yes yeah you (laughs) gotta pick two out of the three yeah you usually need to pick two out of three there's you know there's a few unicorns out there who can do all three and you're like wow like you're an impressive person i wasn't one of them and so um, I, I picked the, I picked one of the wrong two. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoyed going out and having a good time, and uh, I probably should have bailed on the idea of partying mm-hmm. quite a bit and, and spent that time studying and training as a lacrosse player. And so I learned that later on. Right. Yeah. But uh, it definitely affected me early in the college game. So then, once you left um, and graduated, talk about just kind of. Was there a specific question you were trying to answer or a problem you were trying to fix when you started um, DYG and, and Defy Athletics? What mm-hmm. what kind of drove you to where you are now? Yeah. Um, well, for me, it was, I guess, I don't know how it all really started, but, um, you know, uh, I'm going to just bring this up because, like, obviously yesterday Dave Huntley died mm-hmm. and I found out. Uh, later on that he had a direct influence on my playing career and um, I'll I'll bring it full circle uh, here in a minute but um, I'm sorry what was the question no 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 (laughs) so like when you when you when you left college and then oh right went into the kind of your profession what question were you trying to answer what problem were you trying to fix with with um, DYG and and and, yeah and, and Defy it was um so at the high school level, I could score goals mm-hmm. as well as anybody, right? And um, I was, you know, at the high school level, I was a great feeder, dodger, um, goal scorer. You know, I, I seemed to have majority of the game figured out, at least on the offensive side. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to college, I immediately reverted to a dodger feeder. Right. And I could not score to save my life. Um, my shooting stroke was, it was horrific. And I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And I was playing for Dave Cottle at the time at Loyola, and um, he introduced me to this drill where you shoot over one cage into another. So we called it the phone booth drill. And the whole point was to get your hands out and away from your body when you're shooting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and 
I really latched onto this. It was a simple concept, you know, uh, where, you know, you got the stick elevated to a point where you can actually control it with your hands and not your body. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point where I went from a pure non-shooter into a guy who could shoot the ball very, very effectively at the highest level. And it wasn't like I was I was shooting the ball through the net. You know, right. I never broke 93 miles an hour or something like that, right? But a lot of people thought I shot the ball harder than I actually did just because the delivery was clean. And um, that made me realize personally that shooting, at least shooting in particular, is a developed skill. Yeah. You know, people will call him, like, they'll call someone, like, a natural goal scorer. They might have a tendency for getting in the right spots, mm -hmm. but the actual, the actual, like, skill to actually put that ball on the net is developed mm -hmm. right and so um that had a huge impact on me as a player and so now i had developed that aspect of my game that i was really missing at the college level and that that really really impacted me and so dyg started primarily um as i just moved down to austin texas i wanted to do my own thing and brian carolunas mm -hmm. who plays for um the Ohio machine now and yep. I, we started this thing together and uh, we were running attack defense camps and then um, things shifted to products because I had developed a product that um, basically replaced the goal right. that you shoot over. And yeah, it like the gives away, right? Right, yeah. yeah, and it gave away and that thing really took hold in the market and um, it took hold in the football market as well hmm. for quarterbacks thrown over and it made me, it really got me going down the path of like okay this isn't just lacrosse specific this is human specific right and then um and and then uh so i really got really obsessed with kind of the biomechanics of everything how things worked um i work with a group out of arizona called evil ultra fit who are neurological trainers and they mm -hmm. understand human movement and positioning better than anyone in the world i think and um so we work together very closely and um you know dyg for various internal reasons kind of internally combusted and mm -hmm. so but i wanted to keep this thing going and so we uh basically relaunched the pro the company as defy okay like defy your eyes right mm -hmm. and um and now we're back to working on products and running shooting camps in particular and the reason why i brought up dave huntley was because that that drill of shooting over the cage he created mm -hmm. uh apparently dave Cowell, i brought him in years before i got there and they were trying to fix uh, a very good player from uh, back in the day, a guy named Mark Fry, who was a two-time first-team All-American at Loyola, and he was a great athlete apparently, and you know ran like the wind, but couldn't shoot to save his life. And I remember him as as a shooter, right? Yeah, right. And I was, and so that's another guy who apparently, uh, at least according to uh, Coach Huntley, you know, developed that ability to shoot. And um, so you know, it comes full circle with a guy like Dave Huntley because he created the drill for the invention that I created later right. on that really had a big impact on my life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's why yesterday obviously is an extremely sad day. And, uh, you know, but um, that's kind of how DYG started, which is now a Defy. Mm -hmm. Now, did you take, like, kinesiology or biomechanics in college? Because I, I, I was watching the, the Pat Spencer video and then the, the video with Con Heacock, and it was, mm -hmm. for one, just – from a coaching perspective, it was very informative. Just even with, you know, talking about Pat Spencer about you don't have to be the fastest guy in the world to dodge. It's change of speed and deception. And the one thing that, for me, when I first saw it, I was, 
I'm pretty. I'm a late adopter, so it's kind of like uh-huh. I wonder what this video's about and like, who, what's this guy's deal? And the thing that got me was when you talked about rolling back, how you just focused on how quick Pat Spencer's head just yep. snaps back, mm-hmm. and it was like, man, like not a lot of people when they talk about just dodging talk about you don't have to be fast. It's deception. It's change of speed. It's you know kind of what you're selling to that defenseman. Um, and again with the Colin Heacock video everything was like a from an anatomy and physiology perspective um what made you take that approach of kind of the science behind shooting versus Mm -hmm. you know you need to have your elbow here and you know point the butt in like a bazooka and push pull (laughs) like what kind of have do you take a scientific approach to it um i've always been interested in how humans enhance their innate ability to do something Right. Um, I was not a kinesiology major. Um, I, I, I toggled with the idea while I was in college. Mm-hmm. But then you actually look at the curriculum. Yeah, not it's great. freaking tough. Yes. <laughs> like, you yes. Know, I was like, and don't forget, I wasn't a student. <laughs> and so um, for me, it was just, uh, I don't really want to study that. But I was always like an armchair guy. Yeah. I, I loved it. I love like, you know, I, in order for me to, you know, get out of New Hampshire and play at a high level, I had to enhance myself. Uh, on a physiological level, mm-hmm. you know, I had to kind of stand out maybe more than I maybe would have had to if I grew up playing in Maryland. Right. You know, and um, and so for me, developing like my physical ability to do something was always, you know, number one. And so, you know, I've read a bunch of books like The Essentials of Strength and Conditioning. I've read Mel Sif's Super Training, which is the most dense thing you'll ever read. And for a guy who doesn't like to read, it's pretty crazy yeah. that I even <laughs> did that, you know. And so... um. And so if something piques my interest, I will dive in. Right. And so though I don't have a degree in it and I'm definitely no, I don't have any doctorate level of mm-hmm. understanding. Um, I, the group I work with out of Arizona is where I learn a lot of this stuff and they do have that understanding right. and they do support uh, what I, what I try to teach. And the reason I take the approach is um, because I'm very much a selfish what's the right word like it's a very selfish approach mm-hmm. you know where most coaches talk about x's and o's and they talk about you know game strategy and philosophy um for whatever reason that stuff just does not interest me mm-hmm. um that's probably why i don't coach you know uh it's just strictly individual you know selfish improvement right and so um that's where everything went and for and really when i watch a game and i hear a lot of coaches talk about oh we should ran this player this strategy when I watch a game, personally, I don't see a strategy as the problem. Usually I see, see like, the individual as a problem. Like, right. that play was working until that guy threw the ball too low. Mm-hmm. You know, he stopped the rhythm of the ball moving around the horn or something like that. So I have this – I have a, a very strong inability to see things uh, like plays break down right. as much as individuals break down, mm-hmm. thus causing the play or the set or whatever it is you're trying to run uh, from working. And so um, – to me, that's been the important thing, at least from my perspective, mm-hmm. in developing individual athletes on that level. So when you talk about something like, you know, Pat Spencer snapping his head around, well, that if you watch, go watch Casey Powell in college. Anytime he does a roll dodge, that head is the first thing that turns, mm-hmm. right? Um, and don't forget, I grew up skiing. In order to do a helicopter on skis, you just look over your shoulder to turn. You don't have to whip your arms around. Right. You don't have to turn. Yeah. All you have to do is turn your head and your body will follow. 
uh, I always tell my students, you know, if you start driving a car and there's a pretty girl in the lane next to you, just don't look. Yep. Because you'll run right mm-hmm. into her, you know? Yep. And so, I mean, that's pretty when – you, when you break it down, you think about it, that's just, like, kind of common sense. Yep. Where your eyes go, your, body's go, your body goes. And so um, – so that type of, you know, when you're talking about a roll dodge in particular, you know, that's, it's pretty clear and the best guys do it innately. I remember we were doing a photo shoot with Casey one time and, um, we were going over shooting and dodging and he's just kind of, he's like a big kid. You know, yeah. He just loves having fun. He's just so gifted, you know, that this guy just can kind of do everything. Yes. And he probably doesn't even understand how he does anything. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> he's just like, I don't know. And usually the great ones can. Yeah. That. It's like, what, you can't just put in that corner with your offhand. Yeah. Duh, you know, yeah. and so um, I was talking to him. I was like, in a, I had this ignorance of assuming he knew what he was doing, and uh, and I was talking about the roll dodge in particular. And I was like, yeah, dude, like I love how you whip your head around to get your body around. He goes, oh, I do. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you do every time. He's like, I never even thought of it. And you know, most geniuses, as some people might call them, or you know, great athletes, or you know, people just who are really exceptional at something, it comes naturally. Don't know. Yeah. yeah, they don't know how to do it, and so um, then when you get into the ninety degree angles and the straight lines and how humans are designed to move, that's that that part of my understanding really like took another level when I started working with Evo Ultra Fit out mm-hmm. of Arizona, and they started confirming a lot of what I talk about, and then correcting a lot of the things I talk about. I'd be like, no, Ryan, you're wrong here. You're right here. You know. On, on a physiological and actual true scientific science-based level mm-hmm. um, started to kind of clarify and crystallize my ideas and understanding like what makes these guys so good right and really it's all the same stuff yep you watch any great player they really do the same thing mm-hmm. people talk about like oh I want like no but this person has a certain style I'm like sure you're right. They do have a certain style, but if you watch the foundation of that style, right? John Grant, when he shoots, is driving forward. His shoulders are square, and then he might break some of those rules purposely, right? Versus a guy who's not that good breaks those rules accidentally because it's a habit versus mastery, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's kind of where it all derives from. So then, when you work with when you work with a typical high school player let's say he's just Mm -hmm. a sophomore and he's been playing since seventh grade okay what what are the habits that you tend to have to break before you can kind of build that that player back up um probably in almost any skill set whether it be dodging or shooting it's actually you it's it's i like to say we're removing from your game not adding Mm mm-hmm so let's say we have a kid who is a sophomore and he's been playing for a handful of years and he really likes a sport. Um, he probably has a decent level of skill, right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is he's comfortable with a stick in his hand. Right. The problem that often occurs is they move too much. There's one too many spins of the stick. Yep. There's one too many hitches. There's one too many cradles. There's the head tilts to the side where it should be straight up. You know, like these like little like Tourette syndrome type movements, yes. you know, where you go, why would you t- t- tilt your head to the side when you're trying to shoot? And, and the kid goes, I don't know. I go, yeah, neither do I, but it's a habit. And so rarely it's the, rarely are you actually trying to add to the kid's game mm-hmm. or the athlete's game as much as subtract. Right. Cause yeah. they actually, they're good enough. They're humans. They should be right. able to, 
right anatomically do it it's they've just mm-hmm. added that cradle or that one weird step or that awkward yeah movement no no 100 percent. It, it's it's a it, it's it's not that they're not good enough and it's not that they're not comfortable enough it's that what you just said there's one or two or three or often many too many things mm-hmm. and if you watch any of the great players like casey rarely spins a stick Oh yeah, John Grant rarely spins his stick. Mike Powell, I don't think I've ever seen him spin a stick. Right? They're, everything is so simple, and everything is every movement that they make that succeeds is usually the most efficient movement possible. Mm-hmm. And it's usually between two points. Point A to point B is a straight line. Yep. Right? And usually, if it's like behind the back pass, is that it's not because it's behind the back pass they do it because that's the shortest distance between where their stick is and where their target is they want to hit mm-hmm. not because they're trying to be fancy you know and and you see a lot of athletes like pick it up and be like oh he threw it behind the back and they practice it behind the back in a funky way yes you know oh my gosh they, they that's the stick. that yeah. is the worst watching high school kids try and throw mm-hmm. a behind the back pass is hilarious because they right. they never do it. it's push pull it's the right. same yeah. push pull motion you're just Push pulling the opposite way on the opposite shoulder, yeah, and that was right. that was funny. Just working at High Point with Torps being a box guy, uh-huh. um, was how much the Canadians seem to have everything. Yep. Like those guys don't cradle. It's just yep. it's it's catch. If yep. they do, it's just to get the ball right in the middle, and it's just that half cradle, mm-hmm. and then it's just a push pull the next way. Same thing with the round. Everything is just a very mechanical, yeah, sound just push pull right to the ear and it's amazing again i I helped out with a a local high school team and i cannot tell you how many kids they would catch the ball you know i was working with this left-handed attackman and they're we're doing three on twos and we work on him getting wide and catching it and turning and shooting and every time the defenseman would get to his hands because he had to spin his stick three times right and i'd be like Okay, let's just spin it twice. Like, yeah. I'll give. I'm. I'm not gonna make you perfect, but like, throw me a bone here and just cradle it. And he could not. It was. It was like the stick controlled him. It's like you cannot release me mm-hmm. until I spin three times, and then you can shoot. And it was just amazing how just something as simple as you don't have to. You just catch the ball. Yeah. Just. And I don't even know how. It's like just catch it. I. I don't like yeah. you ask some of our Canadians. It's like how'd you do that? I, yeah. I just caught it and then. It was in my stick. Why would I need it? Cradle it three times. Right. Well, uh, they don't have the luxury of time. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, they uh they play in a hockey rink, and so when you when you eliminate that much space, as you know. Yep. Right. You time is money, and it's more so money in box lacrosse than mm-hmm. it is in field lacrosse, and so um, yeah, you know, I just obviously. I believe a ton in strength and conditioning and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, but really it's not <laughs> the strength and speed that really makes a great lacrosse player. Casey right. Powell would be great if he had cinder blocks on his feet. Right. Yep. Like just cause he's so good. Um, John Crant proved that he was great and he did have cinder blocks on his feet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, he wasn't a fast guy. And, and so, um, yeah, sure. He was big and could maybe bowling, but like the idea that, You, the reason why you like maybe lift weights or try to get faster is to support your sport, not to be your sport. Right. 
Yeah. Right? That's why you lift weights. That's why you condition. That's why you try to get faster to support the skill that you're trying to be great at. Mm-hmm. And a lot of I see a lot of people end up competing in the weight room because they care about how much they bench. Right. Where I don't know when when I was at Loyola and at Maryland, you know, the correlation between weight room and and field play there was none. Yeah. Some of the strongest guys on our team never saw the field, and some of the guys who avoid the weight room like crazy always saw the field and were like pound for pound the strongest yeah. on the field we had we had a kid when i played could not bench it was like a kevin durant couldn't bench 185 pounds right but if you put a 210 pound attackman in front of him he'd bench press that kid to yeah. the ground yeah i mean strength is relative mm-hmm. and so um so for me uh position pr- proper human position can make up for what you call strength in the weight room right right if you're in the proper position you are basically maximized uh, biomechanically to generate force. And it doesn't matter if you're pushing weight or pushing a human around. And so, um, and I might be stepping a little outside my bounds here when it comes to like actually moving weight and creating force. Uh, but that's how I understand it and how, you know, the guys I've worked with over in Arizona have explained it to me on some level. I think I'm right on some level there. And, um, but, you know, y- y- you watch box lacrosse, like you were saying, um, they are extremely efficient. Mm-hmm. Every movement matters. Yeah. Right? They don't move just to move. They move because it's going to make a difference. Right. And where in field lacrosse, we get away with a lot of stuff because we can run to the sideline and roll away from pressure a mm-hmm. lot easier without worrying about the defenseman chasing us all the way outside the box, you know, unless they're an extremely aggressive defenseman. Mm-hmm. Right? If you got Brian Carolunas on you, you got <laughs> yeah, issues. See, yeah. Right, you know. Just drop uh, the ball and run. <laughs> right, exactly. Get back in the hole. But if you have your typical defenseman, he's probably not going to chase you far out of the box, so you can kind of avoid it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in box lacrosse, yeah, there's you're no, in a scrum. Yeah. And you have to make a move, and it has to be right, or else it's a turnover, right? And so that's why I think those guys have just done such a good job mm-hmm. of – infiltrating the field game at least on the offensive end right because it's just so easy to expose yes when you play and that's why you're seeing this huge box movement in the u.s Mm -hmm. which is a great thing i just wish most people would like step it up even more Mm -hmm. i wish i think i could be wrong but i think bill tierney said like he would not allow if he had it his way he would not allow players to play field lacrosse until until they're in like eighth grade yeah i I remember seeing that yeah it was like you had to play box like till you you're till you're 11 and then we'll introduce the field right concepts. and i agree with that philosophy yeah. like if you look at i mean save the powells most of the records in the ncaa i think are owned by canadians mm-hmm. and um and uh or, or in iroquois right yeah uh, just box-based players and um and so I don't know. I, I think kind of the proof's in the pudding. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. this whole two-handed thing, I don't disagree with it. I mm-hmm. think there's definitely a value add to it. But I don't know. Uh, I'd uh, If I were to have my way now, I mean, I grew up training two hands, you know, really developing my left hand to be almost as good as my right. Like, that mattered to me. Yeah. And it, it's not like it doesn't matter to me anymore. But, like, I don't know. You just see <laughs> – I don't know. You just see these guys coming out with one hand and they're killing it. And mm-hmm. you're like, well, maybe it's better to have a phenomenal single hand than it is to have two pretty good hands. Yep. Yeah, well, we had a kid at High Point, Dan Lomas, and if you he was a lefty, and if you asked him to throw the ball overhand with his right, yeah. 
he looked exactly like the youth kids we'd have like right, yeah. right after the game, like looking to get his autograph because it, I mean he was so one handed, but because they're forced to play on one side of the field with the sticks to the inside, mm-hmm. they just figure ways around it. Versus here, if you're one handed in America and you're in the field, you don't learn those subtleties of how to operate just yeah. with one hand. It truly is immersion. The mm-hmm. only way to acquire it is to only do it. Yeah, it's like learning a language. It's like, yeah. just go over to Spain. You don't need to go work on uno, dos, tres. Just right. go to the country and and right. figure it out yourself. Um, yeah, most people here are doing it half pregnant right now. Right, you yes. Know? And uh, if you really want to acquire the skills of a box player, you need to just dive now, right in. And, and I don't know if you've, you know, analyzed this guy. And again, he's such an, I mean, he's probably arguably the best lacrosse player in the world right now. But... Mm-hmm. Um, and there was someone else that, that kind of shoots like him, a guy that I worked with at, at High Point, John Haas. Like, Tommy Schreiber is – he's so tight. Like, yeah. when he shoots – now, and I don't think, for the most part, if it's time and room, he's going three-quarter sidearm or underhand. Mm-hmm. And so your mechanics are going to be a little different than if you're going straight overhand. Mm-hmm. And so he can afford to be tighter. John is the same way. Like, his elbow is pinned in – and this is bad radio, but, like, it's pinned into the side – and it sticks back, and it forces him to rotate, and then at the very last second, he snaps through. Uh-huh. I think I know the answer to this question because Tommy Schreiber is the best player in the world, but are those two guys, are they the exception to the rule, um, or is it because they're shooting three-quarter, they're shooting underhand, they're shooting sidearm? Do the the mechanics or the rules of shooting change based on where your stick angle is? Um. I'll probably take a slightly different stance on that. I think they're the exception that kind of proves the rule mm-hmm. in a weird way. Uh, I think, um, okay, if we're talking about, like, shooting in particular, Tom Schreiber shoots 28%, I think, is the last I saw. That's okay. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's a typical American, maybe, percentage. I could be off, right? But, like... If you look at the best shooters in the world, they're high 30s, low 40s. Mm-hmm. And so, um, though Tom Schreiber might be the best overall player in the world right now, um, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, we could all argue yeah. who the best player in the world is right now. Uh, but um, but I wouldn't put him as one of the top shooters in the world, personally. Um, I think he's a very good shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I look at a guy like Schreiber, I see what could be versus what currently is. I think a lot of people um, in, uh, like, our friends in Arizona, they, they, they say it, midbrain versus forebrain thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at, okay, so there's a podcast I recently uh, listened to with uh, Jay Schroeder, who's uh, the Evo guy, and he's having basically a dispute with this uh, long-distance running coach talking about um, Kenyans being the long-distance, the best long-distance runners in the world. And... Jay says, well, you see them as the best a human could be. I see them, and I see how could we make them even better. So I kind of take the same approach when I right. think about Tom Schreiber. I think the guy is clearly physically um, superior. Like, he's fast. He's strong as an ox. Mm-hmm. He clearly can turn his hands over very well and get a lot of snap off that ball. But if you slow down the film on him, there's a lot suffering in my opinion, mm-hmm. from with his shooting stroke in particular. I think he could be, if he's not, if let's say he is one of the top five players in the world right now, I think if 
his shooting stroke was better, I think he'd be hands down the best player in the world right now. Right. Right. So I see him as someone who could be better than he is, which is actually a huge compliment to the guy. Right. You know, I yeah. mean, he's as good as he is with, in my opinion, not having a good shooting stroke. Mm-hmm. Right. But he's still scoring goals. And at this point in his career, I wouldn't try to change it. Right. Yeah. You know, he, it, I don't know how old he is. I'm guessing 25. Um, you know, when, when you try to mess with something like that, there are some things I'd maybe work on that might be easier. Like, for example, his, he doesn't extend his arms. Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to change that. But if you see him shoot on the run, he oftentimes arches his back backwards. Yeah. Well, if we can just get him going forward, then I think you're going to add another 2 or 3% to his shooting percentage, which is maybe a few games. Right. Right. That's maybe one or two more wins a season. I'm not sure. Right? But, like, there's things like that when uh, you – when we talk about a guy like that, we tend to assume that just because he was the MVP of the league, he's the best shooter in the game. Right, yeah. Definitely not the best shooter in the game. If you want to talk about the best shooters in the game, I would say, say maybe like a Lyle Thompson or um, obviously John Grant's gone. But, um, you know, now uh, I'm starting to lose track of who's Ryan who. Brown's. Ryan Brown is probably phenomenal. the best outside shooter yeah. in the game right now that I can think of at least. Um, uh, your boy Haas, I, 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 I got to be honest, I can't. Yeah, face to the name he uh, he's interesting. Like when when we were at High Point, I tried to create an Instagram for him. Like oh, he's okay. just very like doesn't <laughs> like social media. Good for him. Doesn't like computers. <laughs> like he's just like an old soul, and so nice. he's just very. I mean, he's awesome because of that. I mean, he I love just, this guy already. He just doesn't. <laughs> I was like John, like, and his his now wife was a two time Tourton winner at Maryland. Oh, okay. And she's sponsored by Under Armour, and she gets and she, you know so she'll do an Who, Instagram, um, Katie Schwartzman or now Katie Hawes, but okay, you know she'll post, you know some workout bar, with her working out like in Under Armour gear, and it's like John, like you were first team All American at Maryland, like yeah. you have this yeah. marketability, MLL All Star, he's on the Team USA, um, uh, you know practice roster right now, but he's just so laid back. He's like I. I don't want to do it. So, the, yeah. I mean, I tried to even look up John's <laughs> highlights so I could send them to you before we recorded so oh, that gotcha. you could look. There's there's, there's nothing. <laughs> like, there's highlights of Maryland games where John scores a bunch of goals right. that you can, like, sift through, but there's no, like, John Hawes really? highlights the same way that you'll have Tommy Schreiber, or Dylan Malloy, right. or Ryan Brown. There's, there's like, nothing on him, and that's the way their entire family is there is but but is John across his career or does he have another job or um so he's the he's the he's an assistant coach at Penn State now he was okay, at Furman nice. for two years but um so he doesn't have to have social media yeah well that's, well that's what I mean yeah. Yeah, yeah and and it really is but his shooting style is very similar and again I'm trying to think there there's a couple times where John even at Maryland had time and room shots where he'd go overhand but mm-hmm. I want to say for the most part, especially in the MLL, you know, he's going three-quarter mm-hmm. or he's going low to high. Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of his <coughs> his shot. And, again, yeah. he played back when you could have those use, so he's got a little bit of whip in his stick, and, and mm-hmm. he can – and John rarely misses. Now, he's a guy that doesn't – he's not going to kill you with speed, right. but he's just so accurate and so deceptive mm-hmm. that he can – but he's still – he has that Tommy Schreiber – Motion, and I just didn't know again if that's yeah. the exception to the rule, or there's obviously still some fundamentals and some mechanics that they're they're right. following. But right, 
Yeah. I would kind say... Yeah, yeah, and to actually answer your question maybe even a little more clearly because you did allude to the idea of like overhand versus these other mm-hmm. – um, and when I talk about shooting, I like to say there's five shots basically just to simplify it for coaches and athletes. I say – and I do it in this priority. I go the first priority for me is overhand. Second priority is three-quarter arm. Third priority is quarter arm. Mm-hmm. Fourth priority is underhand. And then last priority is sidearm. Side right? And that's for – more of uh, angle reasons mm-hmm. than anything else. Um, I'm not – people think I'm only an overhand guy, which I'm not. Like, yeah. I love underhand shooting. I think quarter arm – I think a great three-quarter arm shot is awesome. The problem lies in with those who can't choose. Right. So there's a pr- – so you'll see a lot of athletes who think they're shooting overhand or actually shooting three-quarter. That's the issue. It's not that three-quarter is worse because it's not worse. Mm-hmm. It's not that underhand's worse because it's not worse. The problem lies in the habit, right? Meaning, I can only shoot sidearm. I can only shoot underhand. I can only shoot this way. Whereas if you watch the best players in the world, they can choose depending on the scenario in front of them. I'm going to go overhand with this. I'm going to go quarter arm. I'm going to go. They can shoot from any spot. You watch Joe Walters. No one knows what kind of shooter he is. Right. He's overhand, three quarter arm, sidearm. The guy's all over the place, right? But. Um, his delivery looks the same. The way he steps in the shot is the same. Everything is so clean. And, and um, so if you were to look at Tom Schreiber again, right, we'll circle, circle back to him. You're right. There's rarely an overhand shot that you see. And that's probably because the way he shoots, his mechanics won't allow him to go overhand. Okay? Um, at least I haven't seen one. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Uh, but that's how I view it. And so when you talk about what kind of shot – he shoots that way, or maybe Haas does as well, um, because that's kind of what they're stuck in. And um, but there's a few things within that range that they can handle, right? And they can, but the thing is, they do it very well, right? Right? They might only shoot quarter arm or side arm, but they're really good at only doing that. And if you have a really strong strength, then kudos, like go kill it. Um, and uh, but as you say, kind of like for me, they're the exception. That proves the rule for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I can't again. I I don't remember uh, uh, John Haas, right? But um, I know when you think of Schreiber, you think of big, strong, and fast. And when you have those type of phys- t- those types of physical attributes, you can get away with things uh, easier than most people. But um, but if you look at some of the principles, like Schreiber might not be great at maybe I don't know driving forward. I can't really think of his shot in particular all the mm-hmm. way right now. But we know he's not great at getting his hands away from his body. But what he is really good at is the turnover, yeah. the snap, the push and the pull aspect. We know he's great at that, right? And to me, if you only choose one aspect of a shot that a person had to acquire, if you could only choose one, whether it's driving forward, getting your hands away from your body, or turning your hands over, the push and pull, I would absolutely choose push and pull over everything else. Right. I think that's the most important. So in my eyes, he's got the 20% that produces the 80% or more of the results. Right, yeah. Right? You know, the Pareto's Law thing. So, like, if you're really good at turning your hands over, you can be a good shooter even if you're not very good at the rest of it. And so um, it's not for me to say he's wrong because he's not wrong. It's just there are things that, could be added that could be a lot better right mm-hmm. or maybe some or like you said yeah some efficiency of just right again it's funny you say just arching his back because i do remember there's one goal that he has when he was at princeton and he just splits to his left and it is yeah. it's that arched back and again i mean the ball charlie brown yeah in the air i mean the ball's still <laughs> stuck in the corner of that goal today yeah. but again it's just something yeah. as subtle as as that can just 
completely change. change a game in a season and a right. And he a might career. go from the twenties to the thirties when it comes to percentage wise. Right. I don't know. And again, it's never to say you can't succeed. And it's yeah. not to say he's wrong. Yeah, because he's not wrong. Clearly, yeah, he succeeded. Yeah, um, but I don't know. I think you're going to be hard pressed to find a typical lacrosse athlete who can do what he does and achieve it right without having this kind of man strength that he has. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that's my opinion, right? So I told you I would take up 30 minutes of your time, and oh, we can go longer. We yeah. are at the hour mark, so I will. Um, wrap up with two two questions. One will mm-hmm. actually be a real question. The second one is just kind of for fun. Yeah, um, cool. So I was listening to one of your interviews, and you were talking about practicing until you like until you feel the mechanics. Yeah, and that resonated with me because again, you know, when I was at High Point, we would we would warm up the goalies, and every time like the last shots, we do these things called like Schreiber time. Which we had okay. to have our hands close and oh, you would and we're do intentionally it. do okay. it. And I, it was funny because I could feel when I got that snap off and that ball was going in. Mm-hmm. I could just feel it. And I, there was times where I could catch it and I would shoot it, and it was just it just felt wrong. Gotcha. Is there like a ten thousand hour rule to that practicing till you feel the mechanics, or, or you know, when yeah. you talk to your students that come to these camps, how do you? explain that and is that more intrinsic individual to individual how do you kind of get to that point of feeling the proper mechanics right <clears throat> when it comes to yeah um that is probably more reserved for the people who really give a shit mm-hmm. right you know um that is you know for me it's more about um trying to obsess over doing it correctly every time instead of doing it a lot of times incorrectly. Um, Feeling is... Okay, so, like, when I talk about feeling the mechanics, when I I went back to college, when I was playing for Coach Cottle, every time we did individuals, he wouldn't have me shoot a lacrosse ball. I would sit there and I would swat the fly for an hour. (laughs) That stinks. Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) Right? But it completely changed my world as a shooter. And... um, and that we we implement that into our camps now. And, you know, kids don't always like it, but at the end of the day, they walk away very psyched because they because I drive it home. Right. And um, for me, during that semester of not being allowed to shoot a ball, pretty much, I think it was about a full semester. Cottle would walk out every time without a bucket of balls. And I'm like, great, I'm just yeah. swinging at the this air sucks. today. Yeah. yeah. But it got to a point where it's like it's when, it's when someone says like, don't get bored, right? Just you know. People talk about this idea of advanced training, and it drives me nuts because there really is no such thing as advanced training. There's just there's correct movement, and then there's incorrect human movement. Mm-hmm. And you want to try to practice correct human movement as much as possible. Right. And it's not going to become incorrect down the road. What works for a young kid will work for an older person. Humans are designed to move in very specific ways. And, um, and there's ways to maximize human output if you can really hone in. Now... People get bored and they want to change up drills right? because they're worried that the kid is going to get bored and they're not going to be interested anymore. Right. But if you're truly obsessed about getting better, you repeat the exact same thing every single day until your hands bleed. Mm-hmm. And for me, when you are repeating the exact same motion all the time, you start to notice the little movement patterns that you weren't good at earlier. Right. Whereas if you did not dive in, you would never notice like a little like hand turn, a little like shoulder hitch. Right, you only start to notice those when you're deep into the process, and you're like, 
oh, like my shoulder was just dropping a little bit when I was going through that shooting motion. And therefore, now I'm starting to feel the mechanic, mm-hmm. right? And when you start to feel the mechanics operate correctly or incorrectly, the beauty is you actually develop the answer to your problems. Right. You take a shot, you miss wide or whatever the case may be, and you felt your body incorrectly move. And you, and you can actually pinpoint what exactly happened. Because frustration is derived from not understanding. Right, yeah. When a coach is yelling at a player, why'd you do it? Player's like, I don't know. There's just a there's a communication gap there. There's a lack of understanding. Like, you know, it's like, why'd you cross the line? I don't know. The kid doesn't want to do anything wrong. The coach doesn't want the kid to do anything wrong. So what happened? Right. It, it's a it's a community. It, it's not a communication gap. It's a it's just a le- there's there's no understanding of what happened and why. And with if you can do that within yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can understand why you missed a shot or why you screwed up a dodge because you rolled your shoulders. If you know that the next time you can go into that dodge understanding like now I need to keep my back straight while I'm dodging and this time when I roll I need to turn my head first to make sure my body gets around and not my butt first or whatever right. the case may be and when you can start to get to a point where you're feeling those mechanics either work or not work that's when things start to really improve because every time you go into it you're actually taking a step towards something better mm-hmm. versus just trying to do it again right. because we all know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. expecting a different result that's the case with most people they go out and they shoot and they practice. They just shoot. But their shooting percentage doesn't go up, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I shoot all the time, coach. Yeah. I mean, we had kids in college do that. We're obsessive shooters all the time on their free time, but they could, couldn't score goals. Why is that? Because they're, they're not taking the time to step back and understand what makes a human good at whatever skill they're trying to acquire. Right. You know? Huh. So that's what I mean by feeling, at least. So... You're an attackman at X. Yeah. There's 30 seconds left in the game. Man up. Okay. You have a righty shooter on the wing, a righty shooter up top, a lefty shooter on the wing, lefty shooter up top. Who are your four guys? Of all time? Of all time. Anybody? Okay. okay. Um, okay, so four shooters. I would go lower right would be Mike Powell. I would say Ryan Brown, but Gary Gate was a righty, right? Or was he a lefty? We'd have to look that up. If Gary Gate was a righty... Well, Ryan Brown, it's whatever, because he can go either way. That's true. You can, I don't even know what hand that guy is. Well, I know he is a righty, uh, at least first. So I go Mike Powell on the right side, lower right side, um, because I've never seen anyone do an elevator shot quite like him. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and then I would probably go Gary Gate, top right. And then to my left... I would go John Grant Jr. and then Joe Walters. It's probably because I don't think, if I remember correctly, John Grant Jr. doesn't shoot the ball that hard, so he's better in tight. Yep. And Walters is just an absolute snipe. Yeah. And you watch him shoot the ball. It's he's just, ridiculous. It's so nice. And he's a guy, too, that his ability to improve after his years in the NLL. Like his first year mm-hmm. in the NLL was terrible. But it should have been because it's like learning a new language. It's like I yeah. kind of know. I was talking to Ryan Boyle, and that's what he was like when he, when I went to to the NLL. It was like playing checkers, but then all of a sudden they switched the rules up, and now there's chess pieces on the board, yeah. and it's like I'm kind of familiar with what's going on, but I also at the same time have yeah. no idea. But then after that first year, I mean, his box game obviously became right. incredible. But then his field on the field game, it just started to 
skyrocket with yeah. again it's you go from i have half a second to make a decision before this guy cross checks me in the neck and punches me versus in the field where it's like maybe a couple i have <laughs> a football field <laughs> right versus a hockey rink and there's nowhere to escape indoors yeah. but um Mm-hmm. This was awesome. Again, we this is the first time that I've gone like over, and it was like over by quite a bit. So again, oh, thank you so much good for coming content. on. Would love to to do it again and just kind of absolutely talk shop about anything else. Cool, brother. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, dude. Yeah, man. It was fun.